Welcome to the Harbor Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information, visit us online at www.theharborli.com. Hey, tonight um, I'm starting, uh, I think, the first of a two-part series. We'll see how tonight goes. Um, But I've entitled this tonight something a little different. I've entitled this Digital Jesus, Digital Jesus. And there's no better transition than what we were just talking about, streaming music. You know, we live in such a, a digital age nowadays. Everything is digital. Everything is on your phone. Now, let me just say this uh, to start. I'm not a hater of things digital. I'm not a hater of technology. I'm actually a lover of technology. I think technology is amazing in so many ways. It makes our lives so much more efficient and convenient, and uh, and some of it's just plain old fun. And so I am not a hater of technology at all. Uh, You know, I crack up sometimes when people are like, Man, nowadays in this this digital age, like we're we're facing things like never before, and and you know it's harder to serve God now than it ever was before. And I'm like, man, you don't read your Bible because if you read the Old Testament, you would understand that there was way worse times than we're living in right now. Uh, but with that being said, I do agree that with with any season of life, there are things that we need to be on guard of, and in this digital age that we live in nowadays, I believe that if we're not careful, we can take on a perspective of serving a digital Jesus if we're not careful. And so anything digital, anything digital is, is something that's manufactured. It's something that's, that's created. It's not personal. It doesn't have a soul, okay? It's, it's, it was manufactured. And nowadays, it's so crazy because you can literally almost replace anything personal with something digital. So if you don't have a lot of friends, good news for you, you can get on your phone and you could have digital friends. You could have friends that you've never met in person, friends that you don't grow up around, that you never went to school with, friends that really don't know you on a personal level, but you can chat with them on your phone, you can chat with them on the computer. So you don't need personal friends if you've got digital friends. You can have digital relationships. Anybody in here have been catfished? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. That's embarrassing. Don't, don't raise your hand. I'm sure there's some people in here that's happened to you. You know, it is possible nowadays for some people to carry on a relationship with someone they've never even met before. Just let that sink in for a second. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Nowadays, we don't need to handle conflict in person because you can just shoot somebody a text or an email to let them know what's wrong. There's, there's, you don't even need to, to have the conversation in person. That'd be awkward, right? So why would we do that? Now, I mean, we could even take it to the extent of you could replace your personal reality with a digital one. If you don't like how your life is going, well, then you could go get lost in a digital reality. You, you could go spend days, months, hours in some fantasy world because you're not really happy with where your personal life actually is. I mean, it is crazy that, that this day and age that we live in, if we're not careful... Without even meaning it, we can replace everything personal with something digital. And I want you to hear tonight that if your walk with God isn't personal, then it's not Jesus. There's no such thing as a digital Jesus. And so we can't ever get to the point where even if we live in this age where our digital dependence allows us to grow to a point where we, we settle for something less than personal when it comes to our relationship with God. Because everything that Jesus has done for you, everything that God has done for you is strictly personal. It was absolutely personal. Anything digital is a reflection of something personal. It's a reflection of something real. And you know what's crazy is reflections can be pretty deceiving. Ref- I, can, I can have a mirror set up and you could swear that you're looking at the real me until something hits that reflection. 
Until something hits that glass and it shatters. Until life hits you back. Until doubt starts to creep in. Some of us maybe settle for a reflection of a real relationship with God. It seems real from the outside. It seems real to an, to an onlooker. But the minute that life hits you back, you start to realize that that reflection is starting to crumble, start to break apart, starting to crash down. Jesus died to have a personal relationship with you. A personal relationship with you. We serve a personal Jesus. A real Jesus. And so, if it was so important for God to have a personal relationship with you and I, tonight I want to ask ourselves the question, if you're here and you're like, it doesn't, if I'm honest with myself, it doesn't always feel personal. Well, if it doesn't feel personal, it's not on God's end. So it must be something that we're doing. So what I want to do tonight is I want to I want to look at a few different perspectives that I think sometimes we subconsciously assume that lead us to the point where our relationship with God stops feeling personal. Maybe areas where we've settled for a reflection of something that's real. Now, for some of us in here, this might be a refresher. This might be things that we've heard before, and it's just good to come back to fundamentals. For some of you, this is going to be the first time that you've ever heard about God this way. But I, I believe that this is so profound, that this, this topic of the goodness of God and the grace, the eternal grace of God, is where it all starts. And it's worth coming back to from time to time. So we're going to look at a few things tonight. I wonder if you have ever been put in the situation where you have put yourself out there by texting uh, somebody or, or maybe writing somebody an email, but specifically texting. Maybe you're telling somebody that you like them for the first time. Maybe you are admitting to something. Maybe you are apologizing for something. Maybe you're addressing conflict. Maybe you're telling somebody that you're upset with them. And you send this text message. You, you, you work yourself up to have the guts to do it. You type it out. You reread it 8,000 times. And then you finally hit the send button. And then you wait for the response. And you see the dot, dot, dot come up. The blinking dot, dot, dot. Is there anything more aggravating than staring at blinking dot, dot, dots? There's one thing more aggravating. When you see dot, 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 and then it just goes away and you never get a response. <laughs> I want to call the person up and be like, I know you wrote something. What did you write? <laughs> There's nothing worse than putting yourself out there and then waiting in suspense on that person's response. I think so many times in life as Christians, if we're not careful, we can assume that same posture with our relationship with God. That we view our relationship with God as a dot, dot, dot. Like we're waiting on God to respond to the choices that I've made. That I'm waiting on God to respond to how convincing my repentance just was. Did I apologize good or did I apologize bad? God, did I convince you to still use me? God, did I convince you to really do a work in my life and to bring breakthrough in this area? Like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm waiting to hear what, what you have to say. I think so many times, without even knowing it, we can live in such a way like we're waiting on the response of God. Which, in Ephesians, we read that Paul says that it's for by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that nobody can boast. This is completely opposite of waiting on the response of God. You see, what this is showing us is that God made the first move. God sent the first message. That while we were still sinners, before we ever even 
were created, before we ever had the ability to choose to serve God, God chose us, God loved us, that before the foundation of the world, he had already made up in his mind that he was going to sacrifice his son for the sins of the world, that God made the first move. In other words, you and I are not living in this perpetual waiting game of waiting for God to respond to our lives. God already did respond. So what the gospel teaches is that God saw everything that you would ever do. God saw you at your worst. And his response was, I love you enough that I'm going to send my son to die for your sins. And through my grace, you can be saved. It's by God's grace alone that we are offered salvation. Not by our works. Not by how convincing I am when it comes to my relationship with God. Not by how well I apologized to God. See, in all actuality, we're not waiting on God's response. God's actually waiting on our response. God initiated the relationship. He sent his son to die for my sins, and now my life is the blinking dot, dot, dot. The way that I choose to live from here on out is my response to God's grace, to God's sacrifice. I want you to write this down. Your life, and I want you to to really let this sink in, your life is a response to the finished work of Jesus. Your life, your life is a response to the finished work of Jesus. You're not waiting on God's response. So my life, okay, Well, what does that response look like? There are a few different responses that one could have to hearing this message of grace, to hearing this good news of the gospel. The first response, which is what God desires, is that we would have faith in his grace, that we would have faith in the finished work of the cross, that we would accept it as a gift, as a gift that I would apply it to my life, that I would believe that this amazing, incredible, unfathomable thing called grace is for me, that it's for right now, that it'll last me forever, that it covers my past, it covers my present, and it covers my future. And this had nothing to do with me. As a matter of fact, God did all of this for me before I was even born. This is just because of the goodness and the love of God that I was even offered this gift. So I'm going to receive it for what it is. It's a gift. Now, even though this is the right response, this is the hardest response. Because I can't comprehend that. I can't relate to that. Nothing in my natural being can relate somebody doing that for me because I would never do that for somebody else. Being honest with you. That doesn't come natural. It's not natural for me to be a good friend to somebody who's a terrible friend in return. I mean, my view is, listen, if I'm going to be a good friend to you, you should be a good friend to me. It should be reciprocating. If you're going to treat me like garbage, well, then this friendship's not going to work. Listen, if you want me to trust you, you got to trust me. Everything has to be reciprocating. If I'm going to help you out, you need to help me out. If I'm going to be loyal to you, you you got to show loyalty back to me. I, I can't get my mind around this idea of grace. That's why we need faith to really comprehend the grace of God. 
But the Bible is so clear as describing it as a gift. Some translations even say a free gift. Just in case you don't understand what a gift is, it's a free gift. The appropriate response to this gift of grace is accepting it as a gift. The second way we can respond is accepting it, but giving God an IOU. But God, I appreciate that. Man, like, this is crazy. Grace is crazy. So God, I'm going to live my best from here on out. I'm going to make every right decision. I'm not going to mess up anymore. And without even realizing it, we slip into this mode of feeling like we need to achieve salvation. We, we need to live in a way that's worthy of God's grace. Can I just burst your bubble for a second? You couldn't be worthy enough for God's grace. You, don't des- you're, you will never deserve God's grace. But we fall into this mindset of thinking that it's so dependent on my obedience and my actions. You know, we keep such a strict record of all of our right and wrongs, being careful to not let anything slip through the cracks without apologizing and repenting for it. You know, I I can think back to growing up. I grew up in church. I grew up around church. I, I can remember being so stressed out, being like, if the rapture happened right now and I didn't apologize for everything I did today, am I gonna go to heaven? That sounds crazy, but some of you in here can relate to that. I mean, I can remember the, the, just being like really concerned with, I need to make sure that I'm sorry for everything that I did wrong. How about this? I need to make sure that I spend time with God because, you know, he gave his life for me. Which is totally guilt-driven. Of course I need to spend time with God. I mean, geez, he sent his son to die for me. Without even realizing it, we can slip into this works mindset where we think that we are repaying God for his grace. And and when you start to hold it up against scripture or when you kind of poke fun at it like I'm doing now, it can seem comical, but it's everywhere. And I don't care how long you've been saved, you're constantly going to fight the battle of slipping back into it. We constantly have this tendency to always make things about us. So you can either receive it as a gift like we're supposed to. You can either receive it and then spend a lifetime of trying to repay God with your works and your obedience to make it worth it. Or the third option is you can just not receive it at all. But this is what's crazy is, you know, your story didn't begin with you. Your story didn't begin when you were born. Your story actually started before the foundations of the world when God saw you before you were ever created and God chose to die for you. So even if you choose to never live for him or never accept salvation, He photobombed your life. He's in it for good. You can't get rid of him. Even if you don't accept what he did for you, he still died for you. So we're we're faced with a few options. Now, some of you in here might be like, where are you going with this? Because you're making me nervous with what you're saying with those first two options. And a little bit, it kind of sounds like semantics. It's not. This is actually, this makes a huge, huge, profound difference in your the way that you approach God will actually shape your relationship with God going forward. I want to I show you some passages of Scripture in Galatians. And, and to give you the context of this, this is Paul writing to this church that he planted. And the reason why he's writing to this church is that he, he started this church on the backbone. The backbone of this whole thing was this message of God's grace, of God's eternal, undeserved grace. But he started to get word that this other message is starting to creep in. That, that there is this idea 
filtering through the church that there are certain things that you need to do in order to be in order to qualify for God's grace. One of these things that is being made such a big deal of is circumcision for for non-Jewish believers. So circumcision was under the old law and basically this church is now starting to believe that in order to get God's grace you need to be circumcised. And so you see that Paul is writing back to this church and what's what's so cool I think is that what we're about to read you see that Paul is pretty annoyed. Paul is pretty passionate about what he's saying because Paul realizes how slippery of a slope the church is going down. Because when you start to to think that the, the things that you do in life are what qualify you for God's grace, it's actually the opposite of what God's grace actually is. And Paul knew this better than anybody else. See, Paul was one of the most religious people to ever live, formerly known as Saul. Paul was a zealot. Paul knew the word better than anybody. Paul was so passionate about religion, he was persecuting people who believed in Jesus. And it wasn't until this guy had a personal encounter with Jesus that he actually even believed in grace. So he's so passionate because he has firsthand knowledge, firsthand experience of how important your approach and your response to God is. I want to read you some passages out of the, uh, the message translation from Galatians. We're going to start in chapter 2. Paul says, We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody say personal faith. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. Do you hear that? No human being can please God by self-improvement. We believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how, and it enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. It's so cool. You see this war within Paul, what we're saying between these two options right here. Paul's being so vulnerable. He says, no longer am I driven to impress God. Anybody in here, can you relate to this idea of living a life to impress God? I can. I fall into it all the time. And and you can see Paul being vulnerable saying, I'm no longer driven to impress God because he lives in here. You can see him working it out right before you. He says, the life that you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal, somebody say personal, and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. There's nothing personal about rule keeping. Let me clarify something for you right now. Some of you in here, you're like, so what are you saying? I could just do whatever I want. That's not at all what I'm saying. 
But what I am saying is when your main objective when it comes to your relationship with God is to, to keep all the rules and to live in a way that you're impressing God, it will never feel personal. There's nothing personal about trying to impress God. There's nothing personal about rule keeping. So I want to ask you a second question. I want you to write this thing down. Has your walk with God become strictly professional? Has your walk with God become strictly professional? In other words, do you and God just have a a business arrangement that you bring him a, a repentant heart and you trade it for salvation? All right, God, I got to repent for this, 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 and this. I just want to make sure we're still good. I'm still, I'm good with heaven. Okay. Like, this is the trade that we got worked out. Me and God have a deal. You know, I just make sure that I do the best that I can. I apologize for everything that I did wrong, you know, and then he, I get, I get salvation. My, my relationship with God goes back to that place a lot, to be honest with you. It's easy for me to slip back into a, a strictly professional. All right, God, you said this, you're going to do this. So if I do that, you'll do that, right? Okay. You know what's so crazy is that it wasn't a business arrangement that drove God to do what he did. It was strictly out of his love for you that he sent his son to die for you. It was strictly out of a personal love that Jesus had for you that he willingly went to the cross. I wonder why it doesn't feel personal when God has been driven by his personal love for me and I just keep approaching him with a trade. God, I want to feel you. I want to know you, but you, um, I did this, and so just could we, I'm good? All right, cool. I'll check back in with you tomorrow. We'll go over, we'll go over how yesterday went. Sometimes I think it's easier for a brand new person who maybe is hearing this for the first time to comprehend what God's grace is because you haven't been following any rules to begin with, you know? Like you've just been doing your own thing. I think sometimes it's harder for people that grew up around church or have been around the things of God for a while because what happens is as you do have this personal, incredible encounter with God, and as you strive to become more like Christ, it's easy to fall into the trap of living to impress God And once you start to make some good decisions, you start to feel a little bit better about yourself and better about your life, and then you start to strive to make that the objective. And then it's hard to separate my obedience from the grace of God. See, again, I'm not not saying that you should break rules. But what I'm saying is, is subconsciously, if you get to a place where you think that your salvation is attained by God's grace plus your obedience... You're done. Salvation is only through God's grace. You couldn't be obedient enough and you couldn't be disobedient enough to affect God's grace, to affect what God already did for you. It's you having faith in that grace that brings you to a place of salvation. Listen, Paul says in chapter 3, he continues, he says, let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God or was it by responding, someone say responding, to God's message to you. Are you going to continue this craziness? Shots fired. For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose that you could perfect it? In other words, let me say it like this. 
if you didn't need to convince Jesus to die for you from the beginning, why do you think you need to continue to convince him to forgive you from here on out? The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. If your relationship with God just becomes about you focusing on your obedience, you impressing God, you doing everything right that you could, you just focusing on this moral standard that you have to attain, no one can sustain that. It's never going to feel real and it's never going to feel personal. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's real life. Rule keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule keeping. A fact observed in scripture, the one who does these things, rule keeping, continues to live by them. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. He continues in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you're cut off from Christ and you fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior. Faith expressed in love. Faith expressed in love. Now for the person who grew up in church, I know right now you are stressed out of your mind because you're like, listen, if I start to think of grace that way, I'm going to go off the rails. Like, if I'm not stressed out about following everything that the Bible says, I'm going to go wild. This is not about your obedience to begin with. And what will actually happen is that when you begin to have faith in the grace of God, when you start to open your mind and open your heart up to this idea that it is purely because of God's love for you that he did what he did, that it is purely by his grace that you even have the opportunity to salvation, it can't help but turn personal. And once it turns personal, this starts to change. Instead of me being focused on rule keeping, I love God and I want to spend time with God. I'm not spending time with God because I feel guilty because his son died for me. I'm spending time with God because I realize, oh my gosh, anybody that would offer me grace must be madly in love with me. I need this so bad. I mess things up all the time. God, I need you. God, I love you. God, I want to spend time with you. I love how Paul talks about this idea of rule keeping being self-defeating because it confirms something that I wrestle with a lot. One of the things that I feel like the enemy attacks me with most, to be completely honest with you, is my quiet time with God. And I'll explain how. If I don't catch myself early on, I could literally spend my entire time, my quiet time with God that I'll carve out pleading for repentance of things that Jesus already saw before he went to the cross and already forgave me of. 
but just being focused on my obedience, on what I've done, of, of what I'm doing, of where I want to go, of what I want to happen. And then what happens is, is I, I end my quiet time with God being way more self-aware and no more God-aware. Being way more self-conscious and no more God-conscious. But it's self-defeating. A lot of times I can leave my quiet time feeling worse than better. Why? Because it was just about rule keeping. It was just about my obedience. And guess what? I'm terrible. (laughs) I mess things up. I'm not perfect. So the enemy can literally twist my initial desire to want to do the right thing. But if it's not personal, if it's not founded in, in faith, in God's grace, then he could even use something like that to be self-defeating. He could even use something like that to pull me away. Could I tell you what then begins to happen is then when, when I become discouraged, when I go through something tough, my first and natural reaction isn't to run to God. It's like, oh gosh, I don't need that now. I don't need to feel worse about myself now. He, he could even twist my own quiet time in a way that it makes me feel further from him. Because I'm more focused on myself than on God. This supernatural, amazing thing begins to happen. When you start to open your heart up to this idea of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, and you start to realize that, man, he saw everything already. He died for everything already. He knew I was going to mess up. And he still loves me. And I'm just so thankful for God's grace. I'm just so reminded the morning after, of how good God's grace is because he died for me. And his grace isn't just this get-out-of-jail-free card that I can just live life the way that I want, but, but what begins to happen is, is, is this relationship begins to be real and it begins to be personal and I begin to have faith in this grace. Now I, I start to feel driven to pursue this relationship. I start to feel this, this longing to want to spend time with this person, this being that created me, that loves me, that is rooting for me, that has faith in me. Jesus died to have this personal relationship with him. Don't turn it into this business arrangement. Don't don't turn it into this impersonal thing that you have going on. He died for something personal, and it won't change you until it becomes personal. The bottom line that, that, that Paul really just highlights in here is he says that doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. And I'm going to have the band come up as we begin to close tonight. We're going to end with a song as we wrap this, this up. But doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. So in other words, right relationship with God is just embracing what he's already done for me. That If I live a life focused on what I'm supposed to do, I'll lose sight of what God has already done. And it's only when I direct my eyes to what God has already done that then it'll begin to change what I do. You see, the choices that you make, the desires that you have, the way that you, you operate will begin to change on its own when it's made personal and made real to you. But if you keep God at a distance, if it never becomes personal, then it'll never change what's in here. You'll never get that inward transformation if you only have this, this outward relationship. See, grace allows you to be free of yourself. 
Grace, it allows you to take yourself out of the picture so that then you can focus on God. And it's so, so important. When you begin to have faith in God's grace, it'll change your inward being. And then the symptoms of your inward being will begin to change. A plant doesn't bear fruit by thinking about bearing fruit or trying to bear fruit. A plant bears fruit when it's plugged in to nutrients and soil and sunlight. And as you are connected with God, as you're connected with your Savior, your life will begin to bear fruit. The symptoms will begin to change. See, the way that you respond to the gift of grace, whether you accept it as a gift or you approach it like an IOU, it'll have an effect on your relationship going forward. But I want to work backwards just for one second as we close this out. Because I think the way that you choose to respond has everything to do with the way that you choose to view God. I wonder if you're honest with yourself tonight. And maybe you've never thought about this before. But how do you view God? Because the way that you view God really determines the way that you respond to God. And we just talked about how when I respond to God, it shapes my relationship with God. But how do you view God? Do you view God as a judge? I don't know if you've ever been in in any competition before where there was a judge Did you feel very close? Did you feel a personal connection with the judge who was grading you on how good you performed or how well you did? I wonder if you view God as this debt collector, like I died for you, you better live right. How close do you feel with the manager at the bank that you have your mortgage through? That if you forget to pay is on the phone being like, you missed last month's payment, what's up? You feel personal connection with the debt collector? I wonder if you view God as just this digital and personal response, the dot, 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 like, God, I hope this happens. I'll be waiting to hear from you. Hopefully I get a word soon. I wonder if you feel like God is just this impartial, unbiased being that is just weighing in on your life. Or... Do you view God as a father? Do you view God as this father who must love you an unimaginable amount in order to offer you grace? Like, what is grace? That is, what? I can't even comprehend that. He must love me so much to do this for me, to see my life in its totality, and to still choose to die for me. Do you view God like that? I wonder if you view God as somebody who is absolutely partial and absolutely biased to you. Do you view God as the being who always believes the best in you? Who who has faith in you? Who is absolutely biased for you? Who is pulling for you? Do you believe in, in God the Father who is always looking to defend you, who is always looking to save you, who's always looking to bring freedom to you, even when you don't deserve it. How do you view God? 
Because if you view God in that first section, you're going to respond totally different than if you view God in that second section. A lot of times I, I can, without even meaning it, without even being intentional, I, I can fall into this trap of thinking that God is more focused on my, my failures and more focused on my shortcomings and more focused on the fact that I messed it up again and more focused on the fact that I fell again. But you know, if, if I believe God's word that he's actually my father and he looks at me as one of his children, well, now as a dad, that kind of changes things. See, I have a one-year-old at home named Chloe, and, and Chloe's walking now, but she's still not perfect, and, and she's got a funny shape. And, uh, you know, when she, when she begins to walk, she has this, like, forward lean like this where you're, like, you're a half a step away from, like, biting the floor. You know what I mean? And, and Chloe will get excited, and she'll take off, and gravity will happen, and she'll wipe out. And you know what? As a dad, I'm not like, are you kidding me? We've been practicing this for 13 months, and you still don't have it? How many times do I got to show you how to walk before you actually stay on your feet? I've told you before, you got heels for a reason. Put some weight on them. <laughs> that, that, that never even enters my head. You know what I'm like? I'm like, yo, she just took 10 steps. Did you see that? Yeah, she fell, but get back up. She just took 10 steps. You know how many she took yesterday? She took eight. And you know what happens when she takes one or two? I'm the first one there. I'm, I'm going to pick her up. You all right? You okay? All right, come on. Let's go. Grab my hand. Let's go. Dusting her knees off. I'm not focused on her falling. I'm celebrating her growth. And if you can fix your perspective of how you view God, that God is your Father who loves you, that everything He's done has been driven by this personal love for you. If you can allow yourself to begin to view Him that way, it'll change the way that you respond to Him. It'll free you up to start to say, God, this really is all about your grace. This really is all about your love. And if you can begin to accept that and respond like that, it'll transform the relationship that you now have that it won't feel like some digital, impersonal thing, this manufactured or created relationship, but it'll feel like the most intimate, personal, loving relationship that you could ever find with the person who is partial to you, who is biased to you, who will always defend you, who will always be loyal and faithful to you, who will always believe the best in you. It's only when you begin to have that personal relationship with him that this begins to be transformed. If you have settled for anything less than personal, then you've settled for less than Jesus. Jesus is a personal savior. And he died for a personal relationship with you. I want to invite you to stand tonight as we begin to close and I want to ask you to bow your heads real quick, close your eyes, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure in a room like this, there's several people who have never heard something like this. Maybe you heard it once long ago, and it's just become something totally different than what it is now. I, I want to encourage you tonight, don't overcomplicate it. 
Jesus did the hard work so that all you have to do is just accept the gift that he's already given to you. Maybe you feel like you're just a mess up. You've done nothing right. Maybe you've just been overcome with all the bad things that you've done, the mistakes that you've made, the things that you've said, the ways that you've acted, and you're having trouble really picturing a God who's that good to say, I'll cover it all. I'll pay for it all. But the good news of the gospel is that that's the case, that God loves you that much, that he sent his son to die for anything and everything that you and I have ever done. And he's given us this incredible gift called grace so that you and I could spend eternity with him. And the only thing he asks us to do is to have faith in that grace. To believe that that grace is for you and it's for right now. Hey, if you're here with every head bowed, every eye closed, and and you say tonight, man, I... I need a relationship with God. I need something to be personal. I need someone to take control of my life. I had no idea that someone loved me like this. I had no idea that this was even an option. But for some reason right now, I feel like I need it. I want to ask you all across this room, do you mind raising a hand if that's you tonight? You just say, hey, I need that. I see that hand. I see that hand. Anybody else? I see that hand. Come on. Don't wait. Don't wait, man. Jesus died for you. He desires to have a personal relationship with you. Anybody else all across the room? so awesome. So awesome. Hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do it all together as one family. You are standing around people who've made this decision, who have the same need for grace like you. We're going to pray together. We're just going to invite Jesus into our lives. And this is a moment where we are introducing you to the one who created you, the one who saved you, and the one who wants to spend eternity with you. It doesn't end here. It just begins here. This is where grace enters the picture. Man, if you're here tonight and you've made that decision, all across the room, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your grace. I ask that you'd forgive me of all of my sins and all of my mistakes. Be Lord of my life. My life is in your hands now. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give it up for every person who made that decision tonight. Hey, for the rest of us, we're going we're gonna to end in just a minute, but we're going to sing one more song. And uh, I want to ask you, I want you just to like do a little self-reflection for a few minutes and evaluate your relationship with God, the current state of your walk with God. I, I want to ask you, Have you drifted into a spot where you've been living like you're waiting on God to respond to how you're living? Have you drifted into a spot where your relationship with him has just become strictly professional? It's just an arrangement. I apologize. He forgives me. I get salvation. Or have you just been so focused on what you've done, what you're doing, what you hope to do, that you've kind of lost sight of what God has done? Because it's really all about what God has done. How about this? Here's a bonus one for you. Have you been living in a way just to get into heaven or are you living in a way where you want heaven to get into you? Where you're like, God, I want to be focused on you and what you've done and your grace. Hey, if you're here tonight and you're just like, man, I need a a perspective change. I need to to come back to the heart of God and the grace of God. I want to encourage you. You mind raising your hands? You mind singing this out as we begin to sing this song? Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your grace, God. It's unlike anything we could ever imagine or comprehend. 
But God, we thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, I pray that if at any point I begin to make it about something that it's not, that you would bring me back to the cross, that you would bring me back to your heart, to your love for me, that I would never settle for a reflection of something real, but I would always pursue the personal heart of my Savior. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you would like to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus today, visit us online at www.theharborli.com backslash next step.